0: Okay, so I'm Danielle Sands. I'm a fellow at the Forum, Forum for European Philosophy, and we're hosting this event today. Um, I'm delighted to welcome uh, today's speakers, so Keenan Malik and Arthur Bradley. So Keenan is a writer, lecturer, <coughs> and broadcaster. He's published numerous articles and books, including From Fatwa to Jihad, The Rushdie Affair and Its Legacy. His latest book, Multiculturalism and Its Discontents, is out later this spring. Um, Arthur Bradley. Arthur is a reader in comparative literature at Lancaster University. His books include the new atheist novel, Fiction, Philosophy and Polemic After 9-11. And he's currently working on a book which is provisionally entitled, Unbearable Life. So today's event is inspired by um, an essay of Keenan's which is called, Rethinking the Idea of Christian Europe. Uh, so, Keenan is going to talk us through some of the key points of his essay to start off with. and Arthur's is going to respond to those. And the aim is to think of the ways in which this idea or question of Christian Europe helps us to think through the relationship between religious and secular uh, understandings of the world. Would you like to start, Keenan?
1: Thanks, Daniel. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. OK. <coughs> if we in the West do not understand the moral depth of our own tradition... How can we hope to shape the conversation of mankind? Now that's the final arresting line of um, historian Larry Sidentop's new book, Inventing the Individual. I think he was here at the LSE talking uh, about it a couple of weeks ago. Of the Sidentop, the notions that underlie modern liberalism, um, individualism, equality, democracy, agency and so on, all derive from Christianity it is, he insists, important to recognise secular liberalism as as a child of Christianity because it is under threat from non-Christian traditions, Islam in particular. And without recognising that Christianity provides the moral and cultural foundations of Western civilisation as he calls it, the threat uh, uh, to modern uh, liberal values cannot be repelled. Now, it's an argument that getting some widespread hearing today. Um, Miloslav Blick is the Cardinal of Prague. He's argued, for instance, that in denying its Christian roots, Europe is undermining its ability to withstand the challenge to its values. This is what he says. He says, at the end of the Middle Ages, Islam failed to conquer Europe with arms. Today, "...when the fighting is done with spiritual weapons, which Europe lacks, while Muslims are perfectly armed, the fall of Europe is looming." Now, that's you know the, the, the kind of apocalyptic view, but it's a view that's very widely held in, the, in, in less apocalyptic terms. So non-believers, non-Christians too, from the historian Niall Ferguson to uh, the, the broadcaster Melanie Phillips, they all hold those kinds of views new atheists themselves the, you know, the, the kind of the, 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 the most trenchant of anti-Christian uh, 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 arguers would argue for the necessity of defending a, at least at a cultural level the Christian tradition um, against uh, the problems of the, created by Islam um, someone like Richard Dawkins for instance describes himself as a, a cultural Christian and sees a necessity to defend Uh, The the cultural heritage of of Christianity um, in response to the threats that we're facing. And that's really what I want to look at. Because the point I want to make is that Christianity has certainly been the crucible within which the intellectual and political uh, cultures of Europe have developed over the past two millennia. But a claim that Christianity provides you know, the bedrock values of of, of Western civilization, as um, uh, Sittenthal puts it, and that the weakening of Christianity inevitably means the weakening of liberal democratic values, is to me a Janet and John uh, reading of history. The philosophical, cultural and moral roots of Europe are highly diverse, and while the notion of a Christian Europe may make sense from a certain perspective, it also serves to hide Um, uh, uh, that diversity and what I want to do is unpick some of the arguments about Europe and its Christian roots it's worth making the point that the discussion about Christian Europe takes place in the context of of, of the debate about the clash of civilizations, an idea popularised by the late US political scientist Samuel Huntington past conflicts in Europe Huntington argued were mainly conflicts within Western civilizations. The battle lines of the future, on the other hand, would be between civilizations. And Huntington identified a number of what he saw as distinct civilizations, including Confucianism, Japanese, Buddhist, Hindu, Orthodox, Latin American, African. Whether you know, you'd consider any of those to be uh, similar <coughs> kinds of categories or whether they'd be called civilizations, um, that's for another debate. The primary struggle, he argues, would be between the Christian West and the Islamic East. and in many ways, the, 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 it's a part of the war on terror over the past decade that the thesis of the clash of civilizations has been uh, uh, deployed an um, uh, in, in, um, uh, increasingly stable. Now the idea of a single homogeneous Fixed civilization seems to me, uh, 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 to begin with, deeply problematic. What we call civilizations, whether European or Islamic or Chinese, insofar as um, it makes sense to talk about these as civilizations, what we call civilizations are complex constructions. They are civilizations precisely because they are porous, fluid, open uh, to to, uh, wider influences. And not only are civilizations culturally and conceptually um, diverse, but ideas and concepts are historically malleable. The meanings of many of the values which Europe supposedly draw from Christianity, such as equality or democracy or universality or, or tolerance, are significantly different today than they were 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago within the Christian tradition, never mind the wider society. Consider, for instance, two of the concepts for which advocates of a Christian Europe often claim that Europe is indebted to Christianity. That of moral equality and the universal humanity on the one hand, and of human agency on the other. These, value lie, these values lie at the heart of, for instance, uh, Sidon Top's argument of, and of his insistence that liberalism is a child of Christianity. Now, it's true that historically, Christianity played a major part in developing these notions. But inevitably, the story is far more complex than uh, than, uh, is allowed by the simple argument for a Christian Europe. The concepts of equality, of universality, of agency developed not merely within Christianity, but within a number of traditions, both Western and non-Western, and through the interactions between these traditions. The idea of God uh, as having created uh, humans in their own image helped Christian thinkers certainly to enlarge the notion of humanity, the meaning of humanity, the dignity of the individual, derived not from his or her uh, participation in a specific community, but through their God-given nature. And yet, you might say, what God giveth with one hand, he takes away with the other. Within the Christian tradition, the idea of a universal humanity was constrained by the very nature of faith. Equality was equality in the eyes of a Christian God. Hence, the long and fractious debate, uh, well into the early modern period, uh, uh, about whether non-Christians were equal. Christians, or even whether they possessed souls. Other pre-modern traditions, um, the Greek Stoics, for instance, faced no such constraint, Uh, and and their views about uh, uh, equality and universality, the universality of of, of humanity, were in many ways far more revolutionary um, than that of Christian theologians, and came to influence many uh, modern strands of, of thought. Uh, probably far more deeply uh, than the Christian tradition does. Ideas of social hierarchy and and inequality remain central to the Christian tradition well into the modern period. It is in the natural order of things, Augustine, perhaps the the, the greatest of Christian theologians, certainly before Aquinas, um, it is in the natural order of things, Augustine preached, that women should serve men and children their parents. Because this is just in life, that the weaker reason should serve the stronger. And as with the family, so with society. It was given by uh, nature that lower orders serve the upper orders and for all to serve the emperor. Slavery, Augustine said, was ordained as a punishment by that law which enjoins the preservation of the order of nature and forbids its disturbance. Now, the point I'm I'm, I'm not trying to make the point that these were specifically Christian views or or Christianity was specifically responsible for these kinds of ideas. It was not. Difference and inequality were stitched into the social fabric of the pre-modern world. And Christian ideas inevitably reflected uh, the kinds of notions about difference and inequality that were reflected in many other traditions of that time. And not till the coming of modernity, and social possibilities that modernity allowed could equality take on a new meaning? But that's important because what that suggests is that what's important is not Christianity in itself, but a transformation of the pre-modern to the modern world um, that is important in, in the way we think about equality, universality, agency and so on. What are now called Western values, which are of course not Um, in any essential sense Western at all, but uh, we think of those uh, through accidents of history and geography. But what are called Western values, things like toleration or freedom of speech and so on, democracy, equality. These are products largely of the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment world. Now, a complex debate has arisen about the relationship between the Enlightenment and the Christian tradition as the notion of the Christian tradition and of Western civilization have become fused, and as the Enlightenment has come to be seen as embodying Western values. So some have tried to co-opt the Enlightenment into the Christian tradition. The Enlightenment ideas of tolerance, equality, universality, they argue, derive from the reworking of notions already established within the Christian tradition. Others who are more ambiguous about the legacy of the Enlightenment, argue that true liberal democratic values are Christian and that the radicalism and secularism of the Enlightenment has only helped undermine such values. It seems to me that both views are wrong. For a start, the historic origins of many of these ideas lie as much outside the Christian tradition as within it. And it is as apt to describe a concept such as equality, or universality is as Greek as it is to describe it as Christian. In truth, though, contemporary ideas of equality and universality are neither Greek nor Christian. Whatever their historical origins, they've become peculiarly modern concepts, uh, the product of the specific social, political and intellectual currents of the modern world, Um, Jonathan Israel, the historian Jonathan Israel, um, he makes a point, for instance, that the crumbling of the uh, God-ordained order in the 16th and 17th centuries helped develop a more radical, inclusive form of egalitarianism because having dispensed with God, there was, as he puts it, no meaningful alternative to grounding morality in a generalised, radical egalitarianism extending across all frontiers, class barriers and horizons. In other words, the the idea of equality that arose outside of the Christian tradition and often in opposition to the Christian tradition had necessarily to be different from that which was uh, incubated within that Christian tradition. And um, Israel argues, quite persuasively I think, that much of our modern concepts, of, uh, uh, of the modern meaning of equality or universality, derives from the radical end of the Enlightenment and their struggle with both the mainstream Enlightenment and with uh, the religiously inspired uh, Christian traditions. Now, it's true, I, th- I think there are times where, where, where the, Israel goes too far. For instance, the, these new egalitarian arguments drew very heavily on radical uh, uh, Christian strands Um, in in England for instance, strands such as the Diggers or or the Levelers or the Anabaptists in in, in Europe but in so doing the very meaning of equality was entirely transformed so we can at one level think about the notion of equality as having developed through the Christian tradition but the modern notion of equality is actually very different Um, We should understand the transformation that takes place um, in a a secular universe um, uh, as opposed to a a purely religious universe. Not only are modern concepts of equality or or, or universality distinct from from historical ones, but what we today describe as Western values would have left the great figures of of, of, of the Christian tradition such as Aquinas or, or, or Augustine, quite bewildered. Because modern notions of equality are entirely different. Notions of rights and responsibilities and duties and obligations are entirely different from the way that Aquinas or, or Augustine would have understood notions of rights or responsibilities, of duties or obligations. On the other hand, Aquinas at least would have understood the Islamic values of Muslim philosophers and and Muslim uh, moral thinkers uh, very well, and and in fact drew upon those ideas, uh, um, as I shall come to argue in a minute. There is, in other words, no single set of European values that transcends history and binds together the Christian tradition in opposition to a single corpus of timeless, uh, uh, set-in-stone Islamic values. And that's particularly ironic, given the way that the defence of Christian Europe is today often seen as uh, a necessary bulwark against uh, the, the encroachments of Islam. It's particularly ironic because not only are there no historically transcendent uh, civilizational values, but Islam has been central to the creation of what we now call the Judeo-Christian tradition. And to understand that, we have to go back, um, back to the early days of Christianity, to uh, the... the, the the uh, fragmentation of the Roman Empire in the middle of uh, 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 centuries of of the uh, first millennium. And the collapse of the the, the Roman imperial institutions left the church as almost the only body capable of maintaining some semblance of, of social order in Western Europe. And it left the clergy as the sole literate class in Western Europe. And the church is the sole patron of Knowledge in the arts, but if the church kept alive elements of a learned culture, and it did, the church leaders, particularly in Western Europe, is different in, in in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, were ambiguous about the meaning, the merit of what they saw as pagan knowledge. What is there in common between Athens and Jerusalem? Asked Tertullian, is that one of the first significant. Uh, theologian to write in Latin. And so preoccupied were were Christian theologians with the demands of the next world, that for many to study nature or history of philosophy for its own sake, seemed to them almost perverse. Augustine Augustine came to see uninhibited curiosity as an evil. In his confessions, he condemned as a disease the yearning to discover, quote, the hidden powers of nature which to know profits not. The Greek philosopher that theologians in, 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 in the Christian tradition most drawn was Plato and the, and the Greek philosopher who, who most um, suffered from the, from, from the Christianising of, of, um, uh, of learning and from the, uh, the rise of what came to be called Neoplatonism was Aristotle whose empirical, this worldly approach to knowledge was most at odds with a dictator faith. Um, those of you who, who, who've read the, the, um, the Name of the Rose, um better echoes uh, uh, who done it, you'll know that in it, the, the Franciscan friar, William of Baskerville, um, uh, investigates a series of murders in a Benedictine monastery in, in northern Italy. And he uncovers a plot to keep uh, 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 hidden, a single book in in, in the um, in the library of the of, of the monastery, the, which is the greatest in Christendom, and in in the novels de Numo," he asks the, the librarian, the blind librarian, why he spent his lifetime protecting this one book, um, and the um, uh, librarian says, because it was by the philosopher. Every book by that man has destroyed a part of the learning that Christianity has accumulated over the centuries. The philosopher was Aristotle and the librarian says that despite the book of Genesis revealing what was known to be about the co- what was known about the composition of the cosmos, it sufficed to rediscover the physics of the philosopher to have the universe reconceived in terms of dull and slimy matter. And not till the 13th century, the the Christian tradition in Western Europe truly rediscover um, its Greek heritage, and in particular Aristotle. A discovery that was to transform uh, uh, European intellectual culture. But a discovery that happened primarily because of the relationship between Christian Europe and the Muslim Empire. In the early Middle Ages... Uh, uh, An intellectual tradition flourished in uh, the Islamic world, as great as that had been uh, previously in in, in Athens, or uh, was to come later in uh, Renaissance Florence. Arab philosophy and science played a a critical role, not just in preserving the gains of, uh, of, of the Greeks, but in genuinely expanding the boundaries of knowledge both in philosophy and in science the rationalist tradition in um, Islamic thought, culminating in the the work of Ibn Rushd and Ibn Senyya, in these days is barely remembered in the West. Yet its importance and influence on what we now call the Judeo-Christian tradition is is hard uh, uh, to overstate. Ibn Rushd especially, the greatest Muslim interpreter of of Aristotle, came to wield far more influence within Judaism and Christianity than he ever did uh, within Islam. And, and, you know, his uh, thinking shaped, his commentary shaped the thinking of of, of a multitude of of thinkers from Aquinas uh, 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 to a host of uh, Jewish thinkers too. Christians at the time recognised the importance of the the Muslim philosophers. In the Divine Comedy, um, uh, Dante places Ibn Rushd um, not in hell but in limbo uh, because, uh, he, 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 because of his greatness and his importance to, uh, to, to Christianity. And one of Raphael's most famous uh, paintings, the School of Athens, a fresco of the Vatican, uh, which depicts the world's greatest philosophers. And among the pantheon of celebrated Greek philosophers, such as Plato and Aristotle and Socrates, stands in Russia. Now, today that debt has almost entirely been forgotten. And there's a tendency to think about Islam as walled in insular, hostile to to reason um, and free thinking, a a view that has helped um, cement the idea of the clash of civilizations. And much of the Islamic world certainly is like that, has come to be like that. But the fact remains that the scholarship of the golden age of, of Islamic thinking helped lay the foundations for the European Renaissance and the scientific revolution and neither happened in the Muslim world, but it's possible that without the Muslim world it would have happened in a very different way uh, within Europe. Now, to argue all this is not to deny the distinctive character of the Christian tradition or traditions, nor the important role that Christianity has played in incubating what we now call Western thought, nor yet the the kind of important philosophical advances (laughs) that have been made within uh, the Christian traditions. But the Christian tradition and Christian Europe it's a far more complex beast than, 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 than um, is often uh, accounted for. In the history of Christianity, its relationship with uh, other traditions, the relationship between Christian values, so-called Christian values, and there are, it's worth saying, uh, maybe I feel I shouldn't have to say, that, but it's worth saying, there are no single set of Christian values. There are a, a variety of different Christian traditions, each of, each of which embody different kinds of values, uh, and it's important to recognise uh, that there are, which is why there are fractious debates within Christianity as there is between uh, within any religion um, about, for example, um, one's attitude towards gays or abortion or, 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 or women's ordination and so on. I mean, these all represent different uh, values and traditions of within the faith. And that the relationship between um, um, these values and modern, liberal, secular societies is far more complex than you know, the argument that Western civilization is collapsing and that um, uh, with, without defending Christianity, it will continue to collapse. It seems to me that the reason to challenge this kind of crass alarmism about the decline of Christianity is not simply to lay to rest the myths and misconceptions about the Christian tradition, but also because the alarmism itself is undermining the very values, tolerance, equal treatment, universal rights, for instance, for the defence of which we supposedly need a Christian Europe. The erosion of Christianity, it seems to me, will not necessarily lead to the erosion of such values. The crass defence of a Christian Europe against the supposed barbarian hordes may well do so. Thank you.
0: Okay. Can everybody hear me okay? No? no?
1: Okay. How about nine? No. Maybe
2: move a bit closer okay. <laughs> okay. Better?
3: Any better? Okay, thanks, uh, Danielle, uh, and, and thanks, Kanan, as well. Um, in response to Kanan, I think I want to say the first and most important uh, thing uh, in starting, which is simply that I agree, okay? Um, so, so, so sorry if anyone's come along to, to hear a, a kind of staunch defense of Christian Europe, because uh, you're going to be disappointed. Um, in fact, I, I, I think much of what he says... Uh, in his attack on this uh, uh, modern attempt to to, uh, uh, co-opt Christian values in defense of of, uh, liberal modernity against a perceived Islamic threat of one one kind or another. Uh, He's talking, obviously, about the work of people like Christopher Caldwell and Melanie Phillips and so on. I think much of what he's just said is historically and philosophically indisputable. It's actually a depressing indictment of the poverty of what, of much of what passes for debate in this area, that he still has to make uh, these points, that these points about the Greek and Muslim contribution to so-called Christian thought still need to be made. But at the same time, I think it's a tribute uh, to Canaan that he's still uh, Very patiently willing to make them, all the while while knowing, as I'm sure he does, that they will not convince a set of interlocutors who really have no interest in the tradition that they claim uh, almost exclusively to uphold and to embody. So to be absolutely clear about where I'm coming from then, I'm not interested in trying to debate uh, Canaan on the question of uh, Christian Europe. I'm actually going to ask something, uh, hopefully a little bit more interesting, which is to ask, where does this debate come from? What what ultimately is driving it? In particular, what lies behind the defence of uh, Christian Europe, so-called Christian Europe, by a group of people who, as we all know, are mostly self-confessed atheists? Is it something more than just a rhetorical or strategic appropriation of Christianity for generally right-wing political ends? Does it have any context within the Christian tradition itself, if we can really speak of any monolithic Christian tradition, and of that tradition's relationship to Islam and to secularism? And finally, what alternative ways might we we be able to come up with to think about the relationship between Christianity and politics, between Christianity and Europe? In what follows, I'm going to argue that all the answers to those questions might have something to do with a very obscure figure uh, in Christian theology, and that figure is called the catacomb, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But first of all, I want to say that this contemporary defense of Christian Europe by such figures as Caldwell and Melanie Phillips or so on gives me a sense of déjà vu, and I'm sure it does to many of you as well. Because it's actually part of a long tradition uh, in Christianity, really going back to people like uh, Joachim of Fiore and to Luther, of this, this kind of uh, uh, attempt to defend Christendom against a perceived uh, Islamic uh, uh, threat. Let me just give one example of this, and it's Martin Luther's translation of one of the most notorious uh, uh, anti-Islamic tracts of the Middle Ages, and it's Riccardo de Croce's uh, text, Confutatio al-Quran, okay? the title, which you can probably tell, already tells you what, it, what it's going to be about. And reading this essay, it reads a little bit like a kind of Melanie Phillips' Daily Mail column avant la lettre. And I think Martin Luther really wouldn't have any, any trouble holding down a, a job at the Daily Mail today if, 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 if he were alive. But thankfully, he had even, even better things to do with his time. Because for Luther, just like Melanie Phillips, Europe is essentially Christian, and Christianity is under threat. And it's under threat both from within and from without. It's under threat from within because it's already corrupt, not by the liberal intelligentsia or by moral relativism or the modern bugbears, but by its own inherent tendency towards sin. But it's also under threat from without. And again, it's under threat from fanatical Islam. Okay? Not waves of uh, uh, immigrants, not uh, Al-Qaeda fundamentalists in this case, but that, that famous bugbear of uh, early modernity, the Turk, okay? the infidel Turk at the gates of Vienna. So reading, going back and reading a text like uh, uh, Luther immediately tells us that there's a context to, to this modern myth of Christian Europe. Because what they present, what these uh, modern defenders of Christian Europe present is something you know, absolutely urgent and timely of the moment, speaking to a very particular set of political concerns, has actually always already been there. Surprise, surprise, going back into, into the very idea of Christian Europe itself. It's possible to go back uh, still further, though, back really to the very uh, formation, the very beginning of Christianity itself. Because I also want to suggest that this idea of Christianity, particularly the idea of Christianity as a, as a kind of defense against the forces of chaos, a bulwark against the forces of chaos, has its root in a, a very curious and uh, obscure moment uh, in the letters of St. Paul, and in particular in Paul's second uh, letter to the Thessalonians. Okay. Now, in his first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul very famously says that the time is short. Okay? You know, the, 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 the world is coming to an end. The parousia, the return of the Messiah, is on its way. Okay? And what do the Thessalonians do in response to this? Well, apparently they went absolutely bananas. Okay? They just went ballistic. They gave themselves up to, to hedonism everything. So if somebody tells you the world's going to end tomorrow, you're not going to go to work, you're not going to pay your taxes, you're just going to do whatever the heck you want. So Paul, or someone in Paul's name, writes a second letter to the Thessalonians, Okay, in which he says, guys, calm down, hold on, Okay, because although the time is short, although the world is going to end, it's not going to end just yet. In fact, there's a whole bunch of stuff that has to happen in between now and the end of the world, so let me tell you about it. And the first thing that has to happen, he says, is someone called the lawless one is going to appear. Okay, and this lawless one is someone who many theologians identify with the Antichrist. It's not specifically mentioned as that. But this figure called the lawless one is going to appear. But in fact, Paul then goes on to say, in fact, this lawless one is already here. The mystery of lawlessness, he says, is already amongst us. Okay? and he says, But he says there's a reason we don't know it. There's a reason we haven't seen him yet. And the reason is that something or someone is holding it back something or someone is restraining the forces of chaos and for paul this figure this figure who is holding back the antichrist who is restraining the lawless one until the appointed hour is the catacomb catacomb literally literally the restrainer now what on earth does paul uh, mean by this He never mentions it anywhere else in his letters. It's never mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And even as eminent a reader as someone like St. Augustine says, he's literally got no idea what Paul is talking about (laughs) at this this point in time. But nonetheless, the catacomb has a kind of history within Christian thought. It has served an increasingly important role within Christian thought because it it provides an answer, I think, to one of the biggest problems uh, that early Christianity, and perhaps all Christianity, faces. And the problem is this. It's the problem of the competing claims of what we might call Rome and Jerusalem, okay? The competing claims of kingdom on the one hand and empire on the other. The competing claims of worldly sovereignty on the one hand and spiritual sovereignty upon the Christian community. Why, in other words, should a Christian obey a worldly sovereign, such as the Roman emperor, when he knows that the end of the world is is imminent, It's a big question in in early Christianity. And in this figure of the catacomb, I think Paul gives a kind of response, or at least gives a sort of answer to this question, which is that worldly sovereignty is necessary. It's necessary to preserve order against the chaos of the Antichrist. OK, so to modern, concern, to modern thinkers, and I, I, I want to particularly cite one notorious uh, uh, figure here, who's the early 20th century German legal theorist, Carl Schmitt, who writes a great deal about, about this figure of the catacomb. The whole point of the catacomb, the idea of the catacomb, is to square the circle between religious and political power, OK? And to lay the theological foundations, I think, for the idea of a Christian state, of a Christian Europe, defending itself, Against its internal and its external enemies, and as Christianity develops, as the time, you know, the time that remains, as, as as Paul calls it, stretches stretches ever longer. When it becomes apparent to Christians that actually the end of the world is not going to be coming tomorrow or the next day, but it might be a while, this figure of the catacomb begins to assume greater and greater importance. And I just want to give a couple of examples of this. I mean, uh. Canans already mentioned Tertullian, and Tertullian is probably the first person to cite the catacomb in a political way. And he uses it quite explicitly to uh, uh, justify, to legitimize the church's political accommodation with its erstwhile enemy, the Roman Empire. He says Christians should pray for the safety of the emperor because the emperor is the catacomb who is going to hold back the chaos, the rising tide of anarchy, That would sweep both Christians and pagans away. So one answer to the question of who is the catacomb is provided in the early centuries of Christianity in the figure of the Roman emperor himself. And after Tertullian, of course, we get get people like Eusebius, who uh, is very famously and caustically described as uh, the Emperor Constantine's theological hairdresser, okay? He's someone who bestows a, an, a, a sacred power upon Rome and an, upon worldly power as, as a force of order against chaos. Yet, I don't think this catacontic idea of politics, order is better than chaos, order is necessary, necessary, any form of order is necessary to defend us against chaos, goes away as we move into the early modern period and beyond, into the so-called Enlightenment and beyond. And I think figures like Hobbes might be mentioned here, uh, counter-revolutionary theorists like Donoso-Cortez or Joseph de Mestre after the the French Revolution, and even the so-called crown jurist of the Third Reich himself, Karl Schmitt, would all fit uh, into this history in one way or another. Um, For Schmitt's many critics, and I'm thinking of people like Hans Blumenberg, Eric Pedersen, or or Jakob Taubes, Schmitt's appeal to the catacomb, his idea that uh, the, the purpose of politics and Christian politics is to defend order against chaos, is the explanation for his own tragedy, for his own, or for his own political disaster, which is, as, as, as I'm sure some of you will know, Schmidt becomes the leading sort of legal defender uh, of the sort of strong executive uh, power interpretation of the Constitution, which uh, legitimizes the Nazi takeover of power after 1933. In effect, in the words of uh, Eric Pedersen, uh, Schmidt becomes Hitler's own theological hairdresser. Okay, becomes the person who justifies uh, uh, the Nazi takeover of power as a defensive order against chaos. And in recent years, this figure of a catacomb has not gone away either. In fact, it's it's probably more present than ever. If you're aware of the work of some uh, leading Italian philosophers like Giorgio Agamben, Roberto Esposito. And very recently, recently, Massimo Cacciari have all uh, written in depth and in detail on this uh, particular figure. But what has all this got to do with the modern myth of Christian Europe? What has the catacomb in this story I've been telling got to do with the modern myth of Christian Europe? Um, I think there are lots of ways in which we could narrate this uh, or, or explain this strange concept called Christian Europe and where it comes from that we might uh, talk about today. Um, it all comes down, perhaps, to how we interpret that you know, incredibly loaded, clichéd, and yet still curiously empty term, secularization, doesn't it? Um, as might already be clear from, from what I'm saying, I guess I would ally myself with you know, a very motley group of thinkers, including people like Schmidt, Taubes, Claude Lafort, Charles Taylor, Agamben, and most recently people like Simon Critchley, who would argue that secularization does not so much consist in the privatization of religion or the separation of the, the, the public and the, and the, the religious sphere, spheres, but uh, Critchley uses a term, and I think it's quite a nice one, metamorphoses of sacralization. Secularites, the process of secularization consists in metamorphoses of sacralization. And I think what he means by this is that secularization consists in the transformation, which can take many forms, of an imminent political entity like a state or a nation or a party or a class into a sacred body whose source of legitimacy is ultimately non-imminent, is ultimately transcendent. And I could give some examples of that later if you like. But I also want to argue that I want to make the more particular argument <coughs> or secularization theory here, that the modern idea of Christian Europe that I've just been tracking and we've just been talking about, is also an outworking of this, this theory of the catacomb and the catacomtic version of politics that uh, is underway uh, from Paul onwards, by appealing to the Christian u- roots of our own political dispensation, by saying that our, our order is in some meaningful sense Christian. I think people like Caldwell, Melanie Phillips and the like, are, whether they know it or not, seeking to implicitly sacralize, sacralize a secular political settlement by bestowing upon it the remnant, perhaps just the cultural remnant, of an eschatological mission. Perhaps it's not just coincidence either that, just like today, Islam has historically always been the target of a catacontic politics. It's always been identified as one of the chaoses against which Christianity must fight. I've already identified the figure of Martin Luther as one example. But for Schmitt as well, the Byzantine Roman Empire also became a kind of catacomb. Why? Because it restrained the spread of Islamicization to Italy following the Arab conquest of Carthage in 698. And just a, a small quote from Schmidt here would be this. He says, Without Rome, Italy would have become part of the Muslim world, like North Africa, and all of the ancient and Christian civilization would have been destroyed. I mean, one question I'd like to ponder today, I guess, is if I'm right, I've given various examples of who the Catacomb has been or throughout history, the Roman Emperor, the Byzantine, uh, Ro- Byzantine Rome, even Adolf Hitler. And I guess one question I would want to think about is, uh, who would play the role of the catacomb today? Perhaps one answer to that question, is, and it's someone kanad uh, mentions in his excellent essay on Christian Europe, would be that self-styled Christian culture warrior Anders Breivik, if you remember the, the person who carried out this... Uh, this uh, appalling atrocity in um, uh, Norway a couple of years ago. Regardless of, of whether he knows this, I think if you read any portions of his of his of his writings on this, this is undoubtedly the tradition in which he is uh, in which he is uh, placing himself and coming from. I want to make one last point to finish, though, and to do so, I want to return to the example with which I began, which is Martin Luther, and particularly of Martin Luther's defence of uh, early modern Christian Europe against the, the, the Turk, the infidel Turk at the gates of Vienna. And I want to do this because it strikes me that for everything, despite everything I've just been saying, there's also one very big difference between the old catacombs and the new catacombs, the old Christian defenders of Europe against Islam and the new. And it's this, because as many critics have pointed out, if you read uh, Luther's uh, uh, essay and read Luther's translation here, there is a very strong element within it and within his theology that welcomes the rise of Islam and the decline of Christianity, that embraces the fall of Christian Europe, that embraces the fall of Christendom, because it is a sign of the coming apocalypse. For Luther, the defence of Christian Europe is futile. The Turks are basically invincible. They are too narrow-minded, he says, to be convertible to Christianity. They're too strong to be defeated militarily. What they are, in the end, is the fulfilment of the prophecy that the blood of Christ is going to be shed from the beginning to the end of the world, and so they must be allowed to work their will. What's going on here? By embracing the decline and the fall of Christian Europe... I think Luther calls our attention to one last aspect of the Catacomb which is missing I think from its modern retellings and it's this that the Catacomb can only ever be a temporary restrainer against the antichrist a temporary restrainer against the forces of chaos because if the Catacomb were a- were were able to delay the antichrist infinitely if it were able to hold off the chaos infinitely it would also be holding off the arrival of the Messiah himself, the return of the Messiah himself. Because in Paul's eschatological story, we get the catacomb, then we get the Antichrist, and then finally the Messiah comes who will annihilate and destroy the Antichrist. So by staying at stage one of that story, by identifying with the catacomb, and by saying that the catacomb can carry on doing this permanently and can hold off... A the Antichrist permanently, paradoxically, you're also holding off the end of the world, you're also holding off the return of the Messiah, and you end up upholding the current historical order infinitely, infinitely. And what this means for me is that there's something of an elephant in the room, then, in the modern apology for Christian Europe, Uh, an apology which does, it seems to me, want to uphold the superiority of Western values pretty much indefinitely. And that elephant in the room is the return of the Messiah himself. Because why, after all, would any Christian want the current political dispensation to endure indefinitely? How can we defend a Christian legacy that has no messianic dimension? And what would it mean to be a catacomb without a messiah, to seek to extend the time that remains infinitely? to postpone the messianic arrival without which the catacomb has no meaning eternally this for me is one of the political theological questions that modern politics perhaps faces but instead of an answer which I can't give today I want to end by giving the last word uh, to a philosopher I admire very much and this is the Jewish philosopher Jakob Taubes who in the very last weeks of his life gave a celebrated series of lectures on Paul which has been translated as a book called The Political Theology of Paul and in this, I think Paul gives a very different answer to the question of uh, Christian Europe and the meaning of this thing called Christian Europe and a very different critique of the myth of Christian Europe, albeit from a, Judea, a, Judea, a particularly Jewish perspective himself. And this is what, what uh, Taubes says. He says that, the idea of upholding uh, the state against chaos forever, that isn't my worldview, that isn't my experience. I can imagine as an apocalyptic, let it go down, let it go down. I have no spiritual investment in the world as it is. Okay, thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Arthur.
1: Can I perhaps like to address some of the points that Arthur raised? Well, well, I suppose the key point I want to make is this that in a sense the the context in which the defense of Christianity takes place today or the notion of Christian Europe takes place is fundamentally different from that of say Luther or previous to that because the context is, is one in which religion does not and cannot play the role Christianity does not and cannot play the role that it did in Luther's time, or in Paul's time. Um, maybe not in Paul's time, it's different, but it, it certainly in Luther's time. And it's, the, it's in the context of the the erosion of, of religion as that... as the foundations of our, of, of our moral and cultural world um, that has created, in a sense, the, the problem. And what it means is this, that for... For you know, there's that there's that old saying by Dostoevsky that without God, everything is everything is is is, uh, is permissible. Dostoevsky actually never said wrote that, but you know, is so often attributed to him that he might as well. But <laughs> the argument, but, the, 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 but the, argue, the argument there is that you need some kind of anchor, some kind of anchor for one's moral and cultural values. That that's the way it's been taken and that with the decline of God that anchor disappears actually it didn't disappear because faith in God became replaced by a different kind of faith faith in the ability of human beings to create uh, uh, our own values our own cultural norms and to live by them and to me what has happened is that it is not simply the decline of faith in God that's a problem but decline of faith in human beings themselves and the capacity of human beings to create and to live by a set of moral values. That's been, in a, if, if, if you look back over, over the past uh, century, that's been a defining feature of, uh, particularly of Western uh, culture, but more broadly, is a loss of faith in human beings. So, what we have is a combination of a loss of faith in God on the one hand and a loss of faith in, in, in humanity in human beings on the other and that's why it, it, it is a it's a fundamentally different uh, uh, context in which the the discussions about Christian Europe takes place and It seems to me that both sides of this debate, both the religious and what you might call the new atheist side, are actually looking for the same thing which is what I'd call moral concrete in which to establish uh, uh, instantiate uh, um, uh, uh, values. So on the one hand, um, there are those who who think that the only way we can, um, given that we no longer have faith in human beings themselves to be able to do this, the only way we can can, um, hold on to, cling on to, establish firm a set of values is by um, uh, having as our concrete not, not necessarily God but, uh, but, 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 but a historical tradition that relies on God. And on the other hand, you have the argument that, that what you need is to root values in science or in nature uh, to find a scientific or, or, or a natural argument uh, a set of uh, notions that that can uh, that, that, that can define our values so for instance um, uh, uh, someone like Sam Harris the, the, the American uh, philosopher, neuroscientist um, new atheist would argue that um, that science not only tells us understanding human psychology understanding the brain, human behaviour not only tells us why we do certain things uh, why uh, uh, people make torture for instance or people uh, while well, we have inequalities. But whether equality is a good or inequality is not. Whether torture is a good or torture is not. In other words, establish our moral values uh, as, as well as defining uh, what human nature is. So it seems to me that, that the context in which this debate takes place is where there's a search for ethical concrete, moral <laughs> concrete, at a time when we've lost faith, both in God and in human beings. And it's that context of the double loss of faith, if you like, um, uh, to understand um, contemporary debates about uh, values, <coughs> to understand the double loss of faith, the fall of God and the fall of man, if you like, if you've already used uh, 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 Christian terminology. Well, do you want to
4: respond
0: to
1: that? Yeah, um... <coughs> I mean, I wouldn't necessarily disagree that the
3: context has changed. Yeah, of course, I mean, the context changed in all sorts of ways. I mean, I guess what I was trying to do is um, is in some way take these modern defenders of Christian Europe at their word, because they are, they are claiming a certain kind of context for themselves, aren't they? They're saying we exist still within a Christian context, even, even as atheists or even as secularists. So I guess I then wanted to ask, well, what, you know, okay, well, what context is that? You know, where does it come from? Does it have a history? Um you could simply see this as a, as a rhetorical gesture, okay? Because one way of defining Europe in Christian terms is obviously a proprietary move, isn't it? It's to simply say, this is us, keep out, strangers not welcome, okay? It's an exclusive, exclusive, exclusive gesture, and for all the reasons that Canaan said, I don't think that works, because the outsiders are already, are already within, okay? There's always been a Greek and Muslim and, uh, 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 c- c- dimension and contribution to everything we call Christian thought. So, I mean, really what I was trying to do, again, is, is, as I said, just to take them at their word and explore what exactly the meaning of this legacy might be. And even for people like Anders Breivik, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't think, I don't see him as an exceptional figure, okay? You know, if you read his, he's almost like the military wing of the Daily Mail, okay? If you read his, uh, if you read his uh, uh, manifesto, you know, that's what you get. Um... I mean, I guess the second point I'd say is also, I mean, about the point about deep pessimism. Um, I, you know, this is a slightly different point, but, you know, I probably share uh, this deep pessimism certainly about, about uh, the human spirit myself. I mean, my, uh, you know, I think Nietzsche is a figure that we need to, to would need to bring into a, any discussion about Christianity and atheism. You know when Nietzsche says that God is dead, when he, you know, when his, when his madman goes into the marketplace to say that God is dead. The people he's telling God is dead are not believers; they're they're atheists. They're people who already don't believe. In fact, they're practicing the modern religion of shopping. Okay, they're in the marketplace. <laughs> all right. So, I mean, that's an interesting point, isn't it? It's why the atheists need to be told that God does not exist. Why do, are atheists the people who haven't worked through the full implications of the death of God? I mean, that might be something we want to talk about. Um, um, and, and finally, just to argue against myself, perhaps ever, ever so slightly, I mean, I think in some ways there is an element in, in people like Caldwell and Phillips and Martin Amos and, uh, and the like, uh, which is maybe closer to Luther than, than I'm suggesting, because I think there is a deep pessimism about Christian culture, about Western culture that pervades all their work. Uh, and a, and a, and a almost a kind of secret, but again, sort of again, this is this is no sort of exception within the history of Christian readings of Islam. But almost a secret admiration for, for the enemy, a secret admiration for Islam, because they've got they've got everything we lack. You know they've got the strength, the courage, the belief in their own convictions. Whereas, you know, today, you know, to quote Yates, you know, the best lack all conviction, the worst are filled with a passionate intensity. You know, and there's also a sense that you know, we kind of deserve it. If we if we if we fall, it's our fault because we've let liberalism
1: destroy us, destroy us from within. I, that's true. If anybody's read any of Melanie Phillips' work, um, um, you will know that she combines a a real, uh, um, not hatred, but a real, um, she really despises Islam on the one hand for its anti liberal attitude, with a real admiration uh, for Islam for um, standing up to secularism um, and being anti humanist and anti secular. I mean, if you read Londonistan, for instance, that's at the heart of it, um, is that um, only Muslims. Are able to stand up to the culture. What she sees as a degraded culture of drinking and shopping and uh, and so on. That um, and and, it, uh, and there's a kind of real admiration, and that's always been there. Um, uh, Nietzsche, Nietzsche, I think is key. But the prob- probably i disagree with you. As to why he's key. It seems to me that you know it's key because he was a. A, a, not just a celebrant of, of the death of God, but, a, but, but the high priest of the wake of reason, in a sense. Um, and it was, you know, it, it, what marked the end of the 19th century was, was you know, we think of it always as uh, marked by the death of God, but it was marked by the death of God and what John Burroughs has called the crisis of reason, too, that, that sense of disillusionment, um, the earliest stirrings of that disillusionment with the Enlightenment project um, take it as you will but but, but that sense of um, uh, optimism about human nature uh, human capacities about reason and so on Um, uh, strands that became much more dominant through the 20th century through uh, because of everything from fascism to the Holocaust to ethnic cleansing to species depletion whatever um, all seen as products of uh, humanity's actions upon the world, um, and so again, you know, Nietzsche very much represents that 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 kind of, that that expression of the, the double loss of faith, loss of faith in God on the one hand, and of humanity on the other, and, and it's, it's that double loss of faith that seems to me crucial, critical to understanding what's going on today.
0: Okay, should we take some questions? They do at the back.
2: Hi. Um, as an American who's also a self-proclaimed um, atheist, I n- nevertheless have some genuine confusion when it comes to why Christian Europe. Uh, I'm also liberal um, because when I look at the world, I have an Asian background. My parents from Taiwan, so I can I look at this question: Why Christian Europe? And clearly, liberal values um, flourished and. The, have achieved most in Eastern Europe comparing to, say, Confucian Asia or um, Muslim world when it comes to equality, uh, human rights, women's status, and, and so on. So liberal values, what we call. And, but when I look at my own country in America and what just happened, I think the country is evenly divided, um, even, a very, very Christian, but evenly divided, nevertheless, the politics Wise. Um, just this week, Arizona, I think everybody knows what happened. The Christian, or I should say, religious freedom versus gay rights or equality. And of course, a lot of people say, no, the bill does not specify as such, but that's what generally is understood. So when I look at my country, I have to ask why, um, if liberal values um, have roots in Christianity now how come in America it's uh, from a liberal point of view atheist point of view, it's exactly Christianity that's holding us back and they are against I say they, I shouldn't, but I say <laughs> against abortion uh, or, or say women's reproductive rights um, gay rights um, Do you possibly uh, the, put this into a question? Oh, yeah, 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 why? I guess just a simple word, why, how can you explain this, uh, what's happening in America?
1: <laughs> um, can I explain what's happening in America in one sentence? <laughs> um, I, no, I mean, I mean, uh, there, there are a number of different points you can make here. Let, let me start with with the idea of secularism. The notion of secularism in America is is, is in many ways there, there are different kinds of different ways in which we can think about secularism, and I, I, I don't. I, I don't um, Arthur raised a number of different ways that somebody like Charles Taylor would define secularism um, not just in the separation of church and state or, or faith and state but also in the decline of religion as the as, as the, as the crucible in which thinking takes place for instance he says and I think he's right that's one of the key issues um, that we think about secularism but um, the relationship between the individual faith and the state is very different in America than it is in much of Europe. Um, uh, it, and the, in, in Europe, the, the, that relationship is different, say in France, than it is in Britain. So I, I, th- I think we, we need to kind of separate this out so that um, in America, you have a much more rigid separation of, of, of faith and state. that One, one, one could argue that that's not always the case, but that, um, that has gone hand in hand with a maintenance of the, of, of the individual and his or her relationship to, to, to religion. So the individual can remain highly religious, while in a broader sense, the state plays little role in, 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 in um, organising or interfering in religious life. You've got to remember that, in that sense, secularism arises out of uh, uh, disputes within religion itself. It, it, it is uh, because of the, of, of the fractious uh, conflicts within Christianity that secularism uh, in, in America uh, uh, emerges, uh, um, because the state, because it was recognised that the state took sides in those debates. That, Ameri- that the state itself would fragment. Um, and therefore, one of the reasons for, for the development of secularism in America was precisely in order to not allow the, the, the disputes within religion to flow out into the um, frag- fragmentation of the state itself. Um, in, in, in England... Britain, Britain. The, the development of secularism is, is slightly different. The historical development of secularism is slightly different. It, it is about the, the right of non conformists uh, to assert their right to their faith um, against that of the established church. Um, that's where, say, someone like John Locke developed his arguments. Um, um, and that's where, why John Locke's secularism and his liberalism is actually so constrained. Um, so Locke for instance didn't apply his notion of tolerance to Catholics it didn't apply to non-believers neither of which uh, should be tolerated in his view uh, uh, by the state Um, so it's a very narrow uh, concept of of, of secularism Um, Spinoza's notion of of, of secularism is much broader and his notion of tolerance is much broader so you do, um, because his argument did not come from um, did not be, the starting point was not the, the, um, the need for uh, non-conformist faith to, ha- to, to, to be able to survive um, within the, the context of, a, of, of an established church. But uh, the, the, his starting point was the problem of institutional faith in and of itself. Um, and so his, his, his notion of tolerance was very different from that a, a, a lot and therefore you have different liberal traditions um, uh, when it comes to what does secularism mean, what's the relationship between faith and state, what's, how should the individual relate to faith, what does tolerance mean um, and I don't think one can talk about a single liberal view on this uh, 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 and many of the distinctions between, say, um, laiste in in France, uh, the way that the kind of pragmatic secularism in Britain and and the American form of secularism um, uh, in a sense reflect the different ways that that what we call liberalism has uh, expressed itself in in, in different social contexts. One final thing, if if I may, which is this point about liberalism in the West. I mean, it's, it's worth... You know, people forget that. um, I suppose I'll just mention two things that people have completely forgotten, um, which kind of gives a lie to this argument about liberalism in the West. When we talk about the great liberal, uh, uh, democratic revolutions of the 18th century, most people think of two: the French Revolution and and, and the American Revolution. The third revolution, seems to me, was historically as important, probably more important, but it's forgotten. It's the Haitian Revolution the Haitian Revolution, is is, is as important uh, because it was the first time that the the notion of moral equality that was was at the heart of the French Revolution actually found concrete expression in in, in a society. Um, We've forgotten all that. Um, uh, 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 We've also forgotten... The importance of the anti-colonial movement at the the beginning of the 20th century and their importance in promoting, pushing, you know, uh, uh, the ideas of freedom, individualism, liberty, and so on. And it seems so. it's, uh, It's because we've forgotten that history that we tend to think about liberalism and about. Freedom, notions of individualism, and so on, as, a, as as a purely Western phenomenon. There are there are lots of historical, social reasons why both um, the Haitian Revolution failed in the end, uh, and and, and um, the, 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 the 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 anti-colonial movements, um, uh, uh, the uh, non-Western countries developed the way that they did. Um, but, but leaving that aside. It's important to recognise that these movements were as strong um, in in, in non-Western countries and pushed, took the logic of of, of liberalism and freedom much further than than there were in in, in the West. Um, And and the failures of of those revolutions of those movements should not blind us to the fact that what we're we're talking about is not purely a Western phenomenon.
0: Gentleman at the
5: back. <coughs> Thank you. Uh, the founding fathers of enlightenment assured the public that you get rid of religion, you will have peace. So, thereby creating a Christianophobia in Europe. But, but Nietzsche wasn't as superficial and dumbed down um, as that. And in 1888, he even though he was anti-Christian, he predicted that the 20th century would be the bloodiest, because God is dead, everything's permitted. Over 200 million people were killed in a secular age, under postmodernistic isms like communism, which went blowing up um, ancient cathedrals and uh, Buddhist temples in Mongolia and Tibet, rather than like the Taliban blowing up statues today. And so this. So the modern um, founders of enlightenment forgot that it was Christianity which shut down the Roman Colosseum, and by getting rid of it, they brought it back again in twentieth century.
3: Uh, Did you have a question? question.
5: Sorry. Well, the question is. you know why isn't the elephant in the room addressed, including the fact many of the metaphysics of Voltaire, who who was a member of a lodge, so was many of the founding fathers of Enlightenment. You know, let's just be honest about it. Why isn't the elephant in the room addressed? Which is which is the origins of Enlightenment itself
3: in Christianity.
5: In the West. Do you
3: mean that the Enlightenment has Christian origins? Is that what you're saying? It... Well,
5: the Enlightenment has anti-Christian origins. Anti-Christian origins. Yeah. Right. Okay. But so secularism is like it—it um, it tries to marginalize Christianity, whereas communism just goes around blowing up churches. You know.
1: Can it, Just briefly on on, on the Enlightenment, if if I may. um, um, The relationship, as I was trying to suggest, between um, different strands of Enlightenment and and, and the Christian traditions is much more complex than the idea that the Enlightenment was was simply anti-Christian, grew out of uh, an um, anti-Christian sensibility. Um, The work of Jonathan Israel, for, for instance, over the past decade, where he suggests that what well, we should think about the Enlightenment in terms of the mainstream and the radical, where um, and the, the mainstream Enlightenment, um, which are mainly the, the Enlightenment thinkers of whom we know, um, people you know from uh, Locke to Kant, for instance, um, largely drew upon, accepted, and worked within um, an already existing theological, religious, Christian framework and, and, and made a combination um, uh, with that framework. The radical enlightenment, he would argue, people from Spinoza to Diderot, um, uh, challenged that um, um, and challenged the, the old ways of doing things and, and that um, in so doing was forced to create uh, a set of ideas, arguments that ma- went much further um, than that within the kind of the liberal mainstream environment, and, and that the modern world um, comes out of a, a, a debate, a, a, a clash between the radical and, and the mainstream Enlightenment. And I think that, that, that there's, a, there's a lot of truth um, uh, uh, to the way he lays out the argument. The, the point I'm making is simply that the idea that the Enlightenment was simply anti christian grew out of an anti-Christian viewpoint, um, uh, is no more. The case, then the idea of the Enlightenment was simply a, a secular version of, of, of Christian ethics and morality. There's, there's a complex relationship between the two, um, uh, between, um, and between the liberal and radical strands that developed out of 17th and 18th century thought, um, and, and, and that complex relationship between the two. And we have to understand the complexity of both the Enlightenment and the, 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 the liberal and uh, radical strand that grew out of it, um, if we are to understand the modern world. One final thing: I think that um, this idea that the 20th century was the bloodiest in, in, in the world and therefore shows the problems of enlightenment secularism um, seems to me. Uh, 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 I, I'm deeply hostile to that notion. Um, uh, you know, you, you just have to compare. Um, our response to what happened in the 20th century. It's just true that, that more people probably died in the 20th century in wars and, and savagery than previously. That just say something about the technology of, of, of war in the 20th century. But you just have to compare our moral response to the Holocaust, say, to the moral response in you know, the 10th, 11th, 12th centuries, so the Crusades, to recognise How much, how different the 20th century was, and how much further uh, morality has developed in the 20th century um, than it was uh, 500, 600, 700, 800 years ago. So, the idea that that, that the Holocaust is simply an expression of the degeneration of morality and of of, of the inability of humans um, to develop. Uh, moral it seems to me wrong. I think our response to the, to the Holocaust states much about the way that uh, moral thought is developed. Um, and I'd much rather have the response we had to the Holocaust than the response that existed um, in Europe in, in, in the 10th, 11th, 12th century to the Crusades, for instance. Gentleman in the middle. Um, the can the can the you
0: one can one please for the microphone yes.
2: we're recording this? The concept uh, was
3: mentioned
1: that one religion should admire and surrender to another religion. I think is wrong. I think the monolithic religions and even all religions should possibly look at the strengths of each other and then decide uh, what, is, what common values they share, which is huge. And shouldn't that be the way forward, that there should be a common values uh, system?
3: Um, it would be nice, wouldn't it? LAUGHTER can I just say, yeah, yeah. I mean, so my, I mean, my answer to that is just yes, I guess. The chances of it happening, I'm a bit more pessimistic about. Um, one point I'd like to come back to, actually, and probably a difference between Khan and myself that um, we might want to bring out here is, I mean, I think liberalism has its own theology, okay? It has, it has its own faith. And, I mean, that's the reason why I quoted that passage from Simon Critchley about secularization as, as a metamorphosis of sacralization. Just just new things get sacralized, okay? You know, it's not, you know, it's no longer God, it's nature, it's reason, it's, it's the concept of the people. And you could give numerous examples of this, um, you know, e- even, even within the Enlightenment itself, I mean... If you take someone like Kant, for example, I mean, Kant famously demolishes the ontological argument for God's existence at the level of pure reason, only then to go on and, com- and reinstate it 100% at the level of practical reason. Because he basically says, how can you make people be good? Okay? How do you force people to be good? It's not enough that there's simply an idea of the good. There, we have to presume, even if we don't know whether it exists, but reason has to postulate the existence of a good being called God, which is a, you know, a total, a total re, uh, re, reinstatement. Of the um, ontological argument, in the case of someone like Rousseau, you know the very famous and interesting discussion, which almost nobody talks about, at the end of the social contract, on civil religion, on the importance of, re- of a concept of civil religion. Why is civil religion necessary in an imminent concept of sovereignty, in a popular concept of sovereignty? You know, it's because you have to. Uh, um, How do you make people obey, okay? How do you make people participate? How do you make people give up their private interests in order to come together into some new form of collective assembly? And I think the thing that interests me is that all these imminent notions or imminent concepts of sovereignty always end up appealing in one way or another to perhaps just simply a fictive, you know, totally imaginary, but nonetheless necessary transcendental, transcendent moment uh, to give them legitimacy, to give them authority, okay, so it's a strange thing where imminence itself reposits a kind of outside, a kind of transen- transcendent point in which it must at least agree to believe in order to
1: give itself legitimacy I agree with you oh, uh, and, <laughs> and I think you know, a modern version of that might be the notion of human rights yeah. Um, yeah. You know, within the liberal tradition plays exactly that same role um, uh, to me, it is um, what underlies it is a um, a lack of faith in democracy in, in, in a broader sense, um, which is why you always need uh, some kind of transcendent uh, uh, bulwark to stop the people doing what you fear that they will do, um, and uh, that's always been there, yeah.
3: Gentleman on the front row. Right. Uh, I'd like to ask you about your view of the Stoics, in particular, um, the radicalism of the Stoics, and yet more particularly, uh, their idea or your idea of their idea of agency. And finally, how does the, the idea of agency relate to their equally strong idea of fate?
1: I'm not sure that, that I'd argue that um, the Stoics had a notion of agency in a way that we understand agency. Um, you're right, that, that, that it had uh, what, uh, what was important for for, for, for Stoics was, was the notion of fate and, 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 and the fact that um, everything was fated, that things were, would be as they were. At the same time, because things were all determined and fated, um, they also had this notion that people could that choice was um, was a reflection of one's nature in the context of that fate. Um, that one that um, you know that it's a it's a famous image of you know, if you roll a cube down a down a hill or or a cylinder down a hill. Um, that both are fated to go down but they go down in different ways because of, of, of their different natures um, and that um, the, the, the point that uh, the Stoics were making I suppose was that was that how you respond to one's fate is an expression of one's uh, nature and, and therefore there's no point in railing against fate um, one, one accepts fate as it is um, and, and one becomes has a, uh, a, a better life, if you like. If one stops reading is that which cannot be changed. Um, but, 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 but that's one aspect of the Stoic argument, of course. I mean, the, the, the other, I'm, not, I'm not a Stoic, um, in, by any means, but I, what seems to be important about the Stoic argument is the idea of a common humanity, the idea that um, we should draw people in from those on the outside of our circles into the inner circles like. the, the, the famous stoic image of a uh, set of circles um, the, the whole world is, uh, has been constructed through a set of circles, the first circles my mind and me, my family my community my nation the world and so on and the idea is to draw people from the outer circles constantly to the inner circles and make them part of my community of my family um, rather than think of them as the other who live in other circles. And I think that's a very powerful notion of what universality means, and it, uh, far more revolutionary, far more powerful, um, than, that existed um, within other traditions of that time, including Christian traditions of that time. Thank
0: you. I think we've got time for one more question. Lady here.
4: Um, My question is this. Um, Do you think that uh, throughout history, uh, philosophers were shaping their theories to adjust to the um, political needs and to enable control over the population? And also, currently, do you think that the theories of knowledge which we have, are some of them used to indirectly shape the lens uh, through which we perceive the events. Uh, and if that's the case, what could, they, could you identify um, a particular theory or trends in various um, approaches to analysis or um, you know, a- any strand you could identify?
1: <laughs> I can
3: take you out the- oh, thanks a lot. Um- (Laughter) I might have to hear the last, uh, the second part again. Uh, in response to the first part, our um, philosophers, uh, what it's a, you're sort of arguing a kind of historical materialist position, there, it seems to me, aren't you saying that you know philosophers are, whether deliberately or or un- unconsciously, developing their theories as a means of social or, or or governmental control? Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Or? Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, possibly, yes. Um, I think you know there's, there's, there would be many uh, uh, examples of that um, throughout history, and there's, you know you'll find lots and lots of people from Marx to Foucault who would who would who would argue a position like that. I guess the, the one argument you might give against it is that you know quite a lot of our ideas of what it is to be government uh, government governed and what it is to be human and what it is to be social are philosophical. You know, so, so you know, philosophers like the ancient Greeks are inventing these concepts as much as being invented by them. So, uh, uh, you know, they, they they cannot simply be be determined by them. I guess that would be one response. I can't, what was the second part again?
4: Um, whether you think uh, currently uh, various theories, uh, whatever they might be, are also used to shape. Uh, the analysis or the lens through which we perceive the events. So, so the approach to thought which we use to analyze the events and to understand the world and to build our attitude towards particular events. Sure,
3: yeah, yeah. I think that's right. I mean, um, let's go back. I mean, if you take one example, the Anders Breivik uh, uh, tragedy, you know, not, you know, it wasn't a tragedy, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a mass murder, wasn't it? Um, I mean, just think about how that was received. You know, in the few hours before, firstly, it became aware who did it. You know, was it a Muslim? You know, there was immediately some some suggestions that it, that it might have been. And then, then when it became clear that oh no, it's actually a kind of sort of Christian culture kampf warrior style figure who quotes Melanie Phillips, you know, at length in his in his manifesto. I mean, the, the way in which suddenly that event uh, was was then handled and interpreted and repackaged by some of these Christian apologists from modern Europe, I think was very interesting. I mean, if it was a Muslim, just in the case of drummer Lee Rigby, who was killed in London last year, that person would, it wouldn't have been an an aberrant event, it wouldn't have been an exceptional event, it would have been, this is a symptom of a larger problem with Islam, and look here, we can find the references in the Quran which prove it, and so on. But because it was Anders Breivik, there was suddenly oh no, this is totally exceptional. This has got nothing to do with anything. This really is the lone nut, the lone warrior, the lone gunman, and so on. So that would just be one example of it, I think. And I don't think I don't think there was anything exceptional about Anders Breivik except for you know the, the you know ideologically, philosophically, nothing.
1: I, but I, I do think that that is important. That there is a distinction to be made between um, the fact that his views about uh, Christian Europe and the threat that it faces, the uh, problems of Islam and multiculturalism and so on, um, find a wider hearing. And what he did about it, I, I, I do think we need to make a yeah. big distinction. Yeah. And, and, and just as it's wrong to say that in some way um, he, his, his ideas make him a loner, which they clearly don't. Um, it's also wrong to say in some way those ideas necessarily lead to the kinds of actions that he took. I, I, I think we just yeah, need yeah. to separate those yeah. two things out. Now, m- 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 much as I uh, dislike Melly Phillips' argument, I wouldn't want to put her up, put her in the <laughs> same frame as. <laughs> and <this great> thing. <laughs>
0: Okay, unfortunately we have run out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for coming. Um, Can will be signing books in the foyer, so do come and join us. I'd like you to join me in thanking